Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Dennis Funk. If you're a producer and you're hearing this... Start polishing up your best work because we'll start accepting entries for the 2014 Third Coast and Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition on May the 6th. And a little secret. We have a new awards category this year. A bit of a hint? Ira Glass helped us make it. Also, I want to send out a massive thank you to everyone in the States and abroad who called our hotline for this episode of Third Coast Resound. If you did it, you just might hear yourself in the show. We're going to do this again in the future, so keep your eyes on our Facebook and Twitter. Okay, all sorted on my end. Now, here's this week's podcast. Well, it is now 2000 today. The Millennium New Year's in London on the Waterloo Bridge. Fireworks running right the way up the river from Tower Bridge to Westminster. Um, which was great until the end of the fireworks. 50,000 people all moved in one direction. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. And then we all just banged up against the backs of the people in front of us. The police had kettled the street for some reason, and nobody could move. We stood there for two and a half hours. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why ReSound collects, curates, and brings you the best stories from around the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, on the air, the internet, via podcast, or things we find hidden away in nooks and crannies. And then we share it with you each week on ReSound. People were fainting, people were pushing and shoving from the back, the police were pushing from the front. It was terrifying. And when they did finally let us go through, uh, a gentleman uh, approached me from behind and goosed me. When you're in a tight space, when you feel trapped, literally or figuratively, the walls start closing in. The heart races. Adrenaline detonates in your bloodstream. You shake. Panic rises. Sweat falls. You gotta get out. And I was so full of pent-up fear, anger, aggression from this situation that I turned around and I just punched him. Today on ReSound, the ins and outs of confinement. Stay tuned. Extreme conditions drive us to extreme decisions. If the stakes are high, then so is the risk and the possibility of reward. Which is what Henry Brown was after, the reward part, when he sealed himself into a very tight and dangerous space. Nate DeMeo tells his story in Picture a Box. Picture a box. It's made of wood. Maybe pine. It's simple. Three feet long, two feet wide, two and a half feet deep, and open at the top. Now picture yourself climbing inside. Sit down. Feel the wood against your back. Run your fingers along the rough surface of the boards. Maybe you have to hug your knees to your chest just to fit inside. Picture someone closing the box, nailing it shut. 
Picture the darkness. Picture a man, five foot eight, but big, barrel chested, nearly 200 pounds. His hair is parted in a thick wave, like Frederick Douglass when he was young. His hand is wrapped in a bandage. This man is Henry Brown. He was born bound in 1815 on a Virginia plantation owned by a man who treated Henry and his family well, which is a relative term. They weren't beaten. They were well fed and clothed and sheltered. But even as a boy, Henry Brown knew that wasn't enough because he felt that love and friendship were the most important things in life. And he knew that if you were not free, those things could be taken from you at any moment. And when he was a young man, they were. When the man who owned him and his family died, and his assets were distributed among his four sons, and Henry Brown, and his mother and father, and his sisters and brothers were among those assets. Henry Brown went to work in Richmond, in a factory owned by the man's son. He worked 14 and 16 hour days, bailing and boxing the tobacco leaves that had been cleaned and separated from seeds by women and children. The factory's overseer would beat slaves. He tied a feverish man to a post in the center of the warehouse as an object lesson, teaching people what would happen if they tried to take a sick day. But this man was better, less cruel than many men in his position. Better, Henry had heard in rumors and whispers, than the men who now owned his parents and his siblings. But he would never know for sure, because he would never see the family he loved again. And so when Henry Brown fell in love with a slave named Nancy, he went to his owner. He told him he wanted to marry Nancy. He wanted to start a family with Nancy. But he needed to know. He needed the man's word that they wouldn't be separated. That she wouldn't be sold. He said he would work his whole life for this man. He would never complain. He would never make a run for freedom if the man could make that promise. The man gave him his word and gave him his blessing. And Henry Brown and Nancy Brown started a family. They had three kids in three years. And Henry Brown was as happy as he could ever expect to be. And then the man who owned him changed his mind. Nancy was getting pregnant too often. She was missing too much work. And so he sold her and her children. Henry Brown was at work when he found out. His family had already been taken from his home. And so Henry Brown did the only thing a man in his position could do. He finished his shift. And when he was done and he was allowed to leave, he ran out of the factory and through the streets of Richmond in the dying light of day to a corner where a thick crowd of slaves stood, where they always stood, whenever their friends and family were marched away from them. And Henry Brown got there in time to catch a glimpse of his oldest child in a wagon bound for North Carolina. And in the columns of people that trailed behind it, men and women, older children, dozens and dozens, shuffling through the dust of the stone street, he found Nancy, rope around her neck, an iron band around her wrists. And he ran to her, and he slipped his hand between her bound hands and laced his fingers in hers. And he walked with her, in the slow march for four miles and then watched as she disappeared into the night. And Henry Brown swore this wouldn't be the last time he would see her. He found a man named Smith who knew another man named Smith who knew men in the north who would help Henry Brown if he could somehow find a way to escape to Philadelphia. Picture a box three feet long, two feet wide, two and a half feet deep, in the center of the floor of a shoemaker shop owned by a man named Smith. Now picture Henry Brown, five foot eight, 200 pounds, climbing into that box. His hand is wrapped in a bandage because the only way he could leave work long enough to even attempt an escape was if he were injured. So he stuck his finger in sulfuric acid until it ate to the bone, and they let him take a day off. Picture Henry Brown sitting in the bottom of the box pulling his knees to his chest and leaning forward, curling himself into a ball so he could fit as the man named Smith shut the top of the box, nailed it closed, and all went dark. 
Picture this man named Smith, a white man, only four foot nine inches tall, rolling the box in a dolly to the shipping clerk, whispering to Brown to keep quiet, telling the clerk that the simple wooden box marked this end up contained shoes and fragile things, and asking the man to be careful, because a lot could happen to the contents of a box that had to travel 250 miles by wagon and locomotive and steamboat. Now picture this box and the man inside it as it made that journey. 27 hours. Picture Henry Brown inside as he felt himself lift off the ground, as he hoped he'd remain upright, as he hoped nothing on the wagon would block his air holes. Picture his relief as they didn't. And picture a moment when the box was thrown onto the back of a train, and when it was transferred onto a steamship, and placed upside down, and he spent eight hours on his head, afraid his eyes would burst from their sockets, sure he would die, but unable to cry out, because there were men sitting on top of the box, hanging out and drinking beers. And then picture the box being opened in a fancy living room in Philadelphia, and Henry Brown stepping out of the box, a free man. Word got around. A man doesn't successfully mail his way out of bondage without word getting around. His escape was celebrated by abolitionists throughout the North. His biography came out in September of 1849, just four months after he had come out of the box, and Henry Brown became Henry Box Brown, and he was good at the role. He had a hell of a story to tell, and he told it well. All over the Northeast, people paid to hear him tell the story and hear him talk of his plan to one day earn enough money to buy freedom for his wife and his children and reunite his family in the North. But by the next year, things had changed. The man named Smith was arrested for trying to ship other slaves North, and Frederick Douglass himself was blaming Henry Brown, saying his fame had hurt the cause of liberty and cut off a route to freedom. Henry Brown was beaten and nearly killed by thugs on his way to give a talk in Providence. And then Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act. And Brown was not only a fugitive slave who could be legally kidnapped and taken back to his owner in Virginia, he was a famous fugitive slave. So he left for England, where things would be different and safe, vowing to return one day and free his family. And things were different in England. He arrived in the fall of 1850 and found that he was already famous. This country that had banned slavery throughout its colonies 17 years before was fascinated by slavery in its former colonies. People lined up to hear the story that they had read about in the papers, straight from the man who'd lived it. He sold out a month of shows in Liverpool. He was joined in the road by the man named Smith, who had avoided prison thanks to the help of his wealthy friends up north and the two of them played concert halls in London and churches in the Midlands and public houses in the Irish countryside. Hundreds of performances. Money rolled in. And then Smith told Brown it was time to go. He had enough money to buy the freedom of his wife and his children and his parents and his siblings several times over. It was time to go back and be a powerful symbol of freedom as the man who came out of the box. But Henry Brown didn't want to go back. He didn't want to be a symbol of freedom when he could simply be free. Because what happens when you open the box? Or you step out of the back of the cave? Or whatever allegory you want to try to apply to this real man and his real life. A man who was born bound in the land of the free, who had first risked his life to go to a place where he was not bound, but he was not safe and who then found his way to a place where he was beloved, a place from which the people he had once loved so much were so far away, in every way. Henry Brown was a free man, and he was free to choose. He was free to make money or make mistakes, and make any life he could in the time he had left. And so the man named Smith left, back to America, to be an important man in an important movement for freedom. And Henry Brown stayed to be a free man. Henry Brown didn't return to America until 1875, ten years after the Civil War had freed the slaves without him. He was accompanied by his daughter Annie and a new wife whose name no one now knows. 
He would die several years later. No one knows when, and no one knows where. But they know he performed as a magician. He had for years in England, long after the Henry Box Brown story had worn itself out. But the box itself had not. That same box he had climbed out of 26 years before was part of the act. Picture a box. A simple wooden box. Three feet long, two feet wide, two and a half feet deep. Sitting in the spotlight in the center of a stage at a magic show somewhere in America. And picture a man in his 60s, 5'8", but stooped at the shoulders after years of living a singular life. His hair has gone white, like Frederick Douglass when he was old. Picture him climbing into the box and disappearing. Picture a Box by Nate DeMeo for his podcast, The Memory Palace. Sometimes, like in Henry Brown's story, the only way out of a tight space is by getting into an even tighter one. After World War II, East Germans, suddenly and completely cut off from friends and family by the Berlin Wall, found there was no way out, certainly not over, around, or through the wall. But the subject of our next story had another idea, which required patience, persistence, and a shovel. Here's Roman Mars and Daniel Gross to explain. Five steps to keep in a defecting population. Step one, build a 12-foot reinforced concrete wall. There was a wall. Step two, build a second wall right next to it, creating a no-man's land in between. Then there was a 10, 20-meter wide strip of land, which... uh, there was absolutely nothing. Das Niemandsland. That was sprayed with chemicals that not even grass could grow. And it was raked every day that you could see the slightest clue that there was a, an escape attempt. Step three, build a narrow road for vehicles of the secret police. Die Stasi. Step four, add electrified barbed wire and also... Step five, signal wire. Signal wires that if you touch it, immediately in one of the watchtowers, there was the alarm ringing. At its peak, the Berlin Wall was 100 miles long. Today, only about a mile is left standing. Compared with other famous walls in history, this wall had a pretty short lifespan. The Great Wall of China has been around for 2,500 years. So have the walls of ancient Babylon, Although its most famous part, the Ishtar Gate, is actually in a museum in Berlin. This is Daniel Gross. But even though the wall dividing Berlin into east and west was only up for 30 years, it had a huge impact on the psyche of the city. It broke families in two. Now, let's remember how we got here. In 1945, Berlin was the fallen Nazi capital. The weary victors could agree on two things. One, Hitler was bad. Two, Germany needed a big change. After that, they did not agree on very much. Berlin was carved up into two sectors, with Western countries controlling the west of the city and the Soviet Union controlling the east. West Berlin had a booming post-war economy, but life was tougher in East Berlin. So in the decade that followed, more than two million people fled from east to west. East Germany was losing its most skilled workers as they sought jobs and to reunite with their families across the border. And East Germany was losing face with every East Berliner who chose to defect. And that's why, in 1961, East Germany closed its border to West Berlin with a wall. But this isn't a story about the design of the Berlin Wall. This is a story about one design to get through it, or really, underneath it. Rolf Kabisch was there. The tunnel had a diameter of less than one square meter. We had to save space yeah the less we excavate the better it was you couldn't sit you were laying on your back or on on your front and with the feet we were driving the spade into the front face you couldn't dig for more than two hours then you are really dead yeah Yeah. 
1964, Rolf was 21, a student at the Free University of Berlin. Rolf was studying civil engineering. At school, he made a lot of models and did a lot of math, but he hadn't really ever built anything. And like virtually everyone in West Berlin, Rolf knew and was related to people in East Berlin. Parents, brothers, sisters, cousins, classmates. How could they get to the West? You could not jump over the wall. You could not fly over it. It was the only way. Dig a tunnel. In 1964, Westerners could still visit the East if they were in good standing with the East German government. That year, Ralph took a trip with his parents and sister from the West to the East to visit extended family. My cousin approached my sister and me and said, can you do something for me? I must get out of here. Rumors had been going around of tunnels popping up beneath the city. So when I get back to to Berlin, uh, I had an idea who was involved, yeah? And uh, I approached him. We were living together in the student's dormitory. I approached him, I asked him, and uh, four days later was in the tunnel. Now, to be clear, the kids were tunneling from west to east. They were tunneling into communist East Berlin. Ralph was led to a defunct bakery along the border. It had closed because too many of its customers were stuck in the east. Near the bakery's entrance, you could actually see East German guard towers looming over the wall. And in that bakery, young Berliners were tearing into the ground, trying to dig a tunnel under the wall and into East Berlin. We were digging vertically down until we got to the groundwater table. If you don't want your tunnel to flood, stay above the water table. And from there we said, okay, half meter above the the groundwater table, we dig forward, straight forward, horizontally. Very simple. Very simple in theory. In practice, Berlin is a nightmare underneath the surface. The city is a swamp. The ground is so wet and sandy that to this day, construction workers have to pump water out of Berlin's soil in order to build new subway tunnels. They even use mobile refrigeration units to freeze the ground solid in trouble spots. But the soil over by the bakery happened to be perfect for tunneling. Because here was the, the geologic um, soil is uh, consisting mainly of clay. That means if you dig there a hole in it, it is self-supporting, whereas sand collapses. And this is one of very, very few areas in and around Berlin where you have such soil formation. Yeah, that made it for us so interesting. Of course, Stasi knew it. So from an engineering perspective, this bakery seemed like the perfect place to dig a tunnel. But strategically, it seemed like a terrible choice. This was the spot where right after the wall was built, some Germans in the east tried to jump out of their apartment windows into the west, which made the eastern government extra careful about security. During the lifespan of the wall, five people died on this stretch of border. So we're talking about a bunch of 20-somethings digging a tunnel the length of one and a half football fields with a garden spade and a wheelbarrow under one of the most fortified borders on Earth. Ralph was actually joining the second tunnel that this group had dug. The first tunnel had stretched nearly 500 feet, a six-month effort. The day they reached the backyard of an apartment building in the east, it was snowing. And because the air inside the tunnel was warmer than outside, it left a small circle of melted snow which basically told the Stasi, yoo there's a tunnel over here. Within a few hours, the Stasi found out and flooded the tunnel with water. But Ralph Kabisch says that being 20 years old in free Berlin, they were all naive enough to try again. One of the student leaders, Wolfgang Fuchs, proposed a bit of reverse psychology. Wolfgang, who was a really smart guy, <laughs> said, you know, the Stasi, we fooled them. They would not even dream about that we use the same location for another tunnel. So idiotic nobody could be. And it worked. And that was the tunnel Ralph started working on in the summer of 1964. The bakery where the tunnel started was in the basement of an apartment building full of retirees. A group of 20 or so students going in and out all the time would have been suspicious. So they had to be stealthy. They could only come in and out every couple weeks. In other words... They had to live there. The bakery had become a makeshift home, 
They slept in military cots and warmed up canned food on a little electric stove that ran on borrowed electricity. Of course, we needed more power than a retired couple is using normally. The most stupid man of a, of a power company would say, my goodness, normally they pay, what do I know, about $20 a month, yeah? <laughs> and now they consume for 200 How come? So one of our friends managed to get to the power supply cable before it went into the distribution board, before the power was metered and registered to the various apartments. The windows were painted white on the inside to minimize suspicion, but maximize lighting. In the bakery's storage room, flour and salt and sugar had been replaced with heaps and heaps of dirt. And when they needed fresh supplies, like tools, baked beans, spare parts, tape, soda, that was where Ralph came in. I had a job as a student on the weekend to deliver drinks, home service. Yeah, I had a small uh, Volkswagen uh, bully, yeah, like a bus or station, a bigger station wagon. And that was, of course, perfect camouflage. Yeah, for bringing in tools, spare parts, cans, bread, drinks in these boxes where normally the bottles were. Yeah. How much soil do you think you moved in total? Um, the shaft going down that had a size of 2 by 2 meters, uh, 12 meters, that is uh, that's already almost 50 cubic meters. Yeah, and then 145. I never thought about it. Never thought about it. Could be close to 200 cubic meters. Yeah. <laughs> Craftsmanship. <laughs> An 18-wheeler truck can haul about 50 cubic meters. So wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow, through the summer and into the autumn, Ralph and his friends scraped and carved and heaved enough dirt to fill four 18-wheeler big rigs. All the while worried, the Stasi would spot them coming in and out, or detect them with special acoustic sensors. Fall 1964. They finally reached the east. They'd aimed for a basement, just like last time. But again, they miscalculated. The one who was on duty on the front face of the tunnel came back with a little plant. He saw, oh, there are roots, and that was grass. They hadn't noticed that the border zone sloped slightly downward. Which is forgivable, given the fact that they couldn't properly survey the land. But this time they were lucky. They had come up inside an abandoned shed. Soon after the tunnelers left the shed, they sent a crew of messengers above ground, legally, into East Berlin to alert their friends and relatives of the imminent escape. The message included a time, a place, and a password. At the time, the radios were buzzing with the news of the recent Olympics. Tokyo is dressed in her holiday best for the opening of the 18th Modern Olympics. And so the password was Tokyo. Tokyo. Ralph and his friends took turns standing watch in the east, holding pistols they hoped they wouldn't have to use. Back in the west, another student stood watch on the... So silent. Nobody talked to the other. Just sitting there like... (laughs) like an ice block. And then I heard one whispering to his neighbor, who knows whether we are really in the West or is it not another trap of the Stasi. When I heard that, that, that was like an electric shock for me. These are East Germans who have just crawled to freedom through 500 feet of mud. But freedom had been out of reach for so long that they didn't believe it when they saw it. So Ralph decided to take a quick detour. He thought to himself, You go with them, not the shortest way. You go through Kurfürstendamm. That they see it with their own eyes. Kurfürstendamm was the center of West Berlin, site of the second largest department store in Europe. It was covered with neon lights and advertisements for Coca-Cola and Marlboro, which you'd never see in the East. Out of a sudden, they were chatting, they were joking, <laughs> yeah, laughing. We made it. As if it had been yesterday. It's still in my head. The tunnel operated for two nights, but among the students was at least one spy. 
At the end of the second night, two plain-clothed policemen knocked on the apartment door in the east, tipped off by one of the spying students. They did not know the password Tokyo. One of the students standing watch opened the door. A moment later, an East German soldier appeared, pushed his way into the building, and cornered the student at the door with a Kalashnikov. Then another student fired a shot. All of them sprinted to the backyard and into the shed, while the East German police fired shots after them. By the end of the night, one East German soldier was dead. The tunnel had been destroyed with grenades, and 57 people had escaped. And so the tunnel became known as Tunnel 57. But the one person Ralph was trying to get out, his cousin, was not among them. After the tunnel was destroyed, East German newspapers wrote about Western gangsters who had tunneled in and killed one of their soldiers. The East German government installed a plaque where the escape had occurred, condemning this violent assassination. The Western students sent a letter over the wall using balloons. It read, We speak on behalf of our group, which over the last half year built a tunnel through which 57 fugitives fled and at the entrance to which your son was shot. First, we would like to express our sincerest sympathies for so heavy a loss. They were taking responsibility for the death of this Eastern soldier, but the letter went on. But the real murderer is the system that addressed the massive flight of its citizens not by removing the cause of the problem, but by building a wall and giving the order for Germans to shoot Germans. This story persisted for exactly 30 years, longer than the wall even existed. The story that in helping 57 people escape, Western tunnelers killed an Eastern soldier. Years after the wall came down in 1989, Stasi records revealed that the Eastern soldier was actually killed by friendly fire in all the confusion. The sixth step to controlling a defecting population, build a wall around information and preserve the regime's reputation. We destroyed the wall down to its roots. And only a year later, we said, oh, what, what have we done with, with our own history? No clue. Only here, 100 meters, and there's a little bit left here, yeah, and that was then pre- preserved. You must understand that from situation. The Berlin, the West Berliners, they were, let me say, they were fenced in. Yeah? They were like prisoners in, uh, in, a, in a free garden. There was such hate, such emotion yeah turn it down destroy it never 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 ever again this is kind of the paradox of the past in berlin destroy it but never forget this is a city with layers and layers of history and yet much of it is gone the bunker where hitler died for instance was mostly demolished for decades it was totally unmarked to prevent it from becoming a symbolic site for neo-nazis The government finally installed a plaque in 2006. Even the largest remnant of the wall, the East Side Gallery, which is covered with paintings from international artists, is slated for partial demolition to make room for luxury apartments. Rolf Kabisch became a transportation engineer. He digs tunnels for a living. How many tunnels have you helped build in your life? Oh, several. Subway tunnels, Korea, China, Thailand. Rolf spent his entire engineering career digging underground. When he finished school, he got a job with a German engineering company that worked on railroads. They made him an international engineering consultant on underground train systems all over the world. Taipei railway tunnel, Taipei subway tunnel, Athens, two metro lines, complete metro lines. What else? These tunnels were way, way bigger than the scrappy tunnel he dug with friends under the wall. But for Rolf, all those tunnels lead back, at least in his mind, to Tunnel 57. Let me say it a little bit uh, like a joke. It was our apprenticeship. (laughs) Tunnel 57 was produced by Roman Mars and Daniel Gross for the podcast 99% Invisible.
I was in a building and I got on the elevator on the 39th floor. It dropped the bottom floor and then it stopped. I decided, well, it's jammed. I pressed the buttons and uh, the bell started ringing. On come a security guard so I'm and say, sir, are you okay? And I say, yes, I am. And then he said, relax, and we'll have you out of there soon. But then he called back a minute later. Then he called back another minute later. He said, sir, are you okay? I said, sir, you're making me nervous. Quit calling me every minute and ask me, am I okay? Just get me the hell out of here. Coming up after the break, feeling claustrophobic in wide open spaces and a sensory deprivation tank that's neither sensory depriving nor a tank. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One night, I was having a dream. Maybe I was about five years old. And I dreamt that I was on Captain Hook's pirate ship. And my head was a cannonball. I awoke to feel pressure on both sides of my head. My head was stuck in between the wall and the mattress, and I had to yell for 20 minutes until my mom came. To this day, I'm a little bit afraid of Captain Hook. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi, and today we're talking about tight spaces. Many years ago, Elizabeth Arnold covered the halls of Congress for NPR, which was a long, long way from her home and first love, the great wilderness and natural beauty of Alaska. Wide open spaces, great spans of ocean, mountains and trees as far as you can see, these are the places where she felt most at peace. And throughout her many adventures around the world, she tried to escape the crowds, the noise, and all the confined spaces. But sometimes, no matter how hard you try to escape the chaos, it finds you. I'm out here in the Chugach Mountains and snowing. It's been snowing for about a week. The mountains and the ridgelines are, whoa, coming in and out. One minute you can see everything and the next minute all I can see is the tips of my skis. Anyway, I live here in Alaska because it's it's a big empty place and you can ski for miles like this and never see anybody. It's about as close to religion as I can get church and all that, just being out here and feeling small and kind of wondering at the mystery of, of it all. No matter what you believe in, when you're in a place like this, it's just in your face. Oh, there's a bull moose behind a tree about... Oh, 50 yards from me. It's just hunkered down in the snow. It's got snow on its face and back. He's not going anywhere, but I better. A little downhill here. I think people need space. 
I do anyway. So what happens when, when you put someone like me in a place like China, a country with a quarter of the world's population, something like 350 people per square mile? Well, I mean, forget the sheer density of a place like Beijing, even rural China. It's, it's just swarming with people. I was at this uh, open-air market in Hadapu, and, and there wasn't any open air. Even when I was inside this jeep, driving along, I mean, you look at the map and you look for open spots where you think, you know, there's no names, you think there's no cities, there are. There's just no pause in this relentless march of factories and power plants and power lines and dams and, and people. The people and the land both look exhausted totally worn out from being so productive for so long. I read somewhere that Americans need more personal space than any other culture in the world. And it said 24 and a half inches. That's just two feet. I mean, that's not nearly enough for me. Okay, well, that was... A long day. I'm now here in my little room with one light bulb. But nobody's staring at me, and I don't have anybody to stare at. So we drove way past midnight tonight, and even that late, the headlights would flash on these men crouched at the side of the road. There were just all kinds of people still out, brushing their teeth and washing their hair all in the road. It's just so crowded. Anyway, it feels good to be in this little room right now. The next day, we drove through what used to be, or what they said used to be, a grassland. And it it was the first open space that I'd seen in weeks. There wasn't any grass. The whole place had been grazed to dirt, completely overgrazed, and just trampled into this wide expanse of hard, cracked mud. And we pulled off the road onto this mud to get around this Tibetan construction crew, and they blocked us. So it turns out this barren, overgrazed, so-called grassland is protected land, and we were assessed a fee for trespassing. So open land in China, it seems, no matter how degraded, is at a premium. Then we go up and over this pass, and there's a government-sponsored billboard encouraging family planning, and it's towering over this little shantytown underneath of these highway workers. And the sign is a picture of this smiling Chinese boy holding hands with his parents, and underneath it says, use contraception because China's future are children need room. The need for room and space is the one commodity China doesn't have. And it's the one commodity that all of China's people can't manufacture. So then I went north of all of this humanity to outer Mongolia, which is a stunning contrast because it's the world's least populated country. I took the Trans-Mongolian Railway from Beijing to Ulaanbaatar. The terrace slopes and the brickyards and the dams and mines and power plants of China all gave way to sand. My eyes just rested on the horizon and I relaxed for the first time in weeks just looking out the window at nothing. So there I was in an, another jeep in the far northwestern corner of Mongolia, which is about as far out as you can get. And there are no roads. And there, there are names on the map. So you think you're going someplace, but there are no corresponding cities or even dwellings. There's nobody. I was crammed in a Russian jeep with seven Mongolian herders in their bright blue robes and orange sashes and one small child and one freshly killed sheep 
on the dashboard in the sun. And the Jeep kept breaking down, and I looked around and thought about it and realized there's no possibility of help. I'll try to get out of the wind here. I'm trying to use the Jeep as a wind block. How to get out of the Jeep. It's just getting a little too crowded here in outer Mongolia. We've been in this Jeep for a long time. Everything imaginable has happened to it. And the driver keeps taking it apart and putting it back together again. And we don't have a clutch. Still have steering. But it keeps overheating, so even though it's freezing, when we get to the top of a hill, we turn around and face the wind and open the hood. And then we sit here like this for hours. And they all play cards. So I always thought I wanted to come someplace really remote. Kind of having second thoughts about that right about now. Oh, there's the hood. We gotta get in. Okay, let's give it a shot. So there's no road, and this treeless landscape of brown hills just is similar hour after hour after hour. And, and despite all of our stops and starts, nobody but me seems to be in any rush to get anywhere. No, no, we're pulling off the road again here. That's a bad sign. Okay, well, now I guess we're going to play cards again. After many more hands of cards, we finally did arrive at a tiny yurt high up in the mountains, and the Mongolians all hurried inside. Seven people, one small child, in this small canvas tent with a dirt floor. I mean, it's a tiny little tent, and it stinks, and it's smoky, and there are no windows. And yet they, you know, for days at a time, wouldn't go outside. And looking around, as we were slurping in another meal of mutton soup, I, I realized there were no windows, save the hole in the center of the roof for the stovepipe. And these people, still partly nomadic, live here in this remote, spectacularly scenic place, and yet they had no real desire to go outside or even look outside unless they had to. They spend more time with each other than most people do. It's almost because it is so vast and empty, it makes them more people people. But for me, it's completely different. I couldn't wait to get out of the earth. And when I did get out, I went right straight up into the mountains and started feeling better with every step. Being out in open places that's what makes me feel good again. And, and then later that night on the dirt floor in my sleeping bag, the Mongolians were snoring and shifting positions in this close circle of cots all around me. At one point I looked up at the stars through this tiny hole in the roof and thought about Alaska and being on my skis and the quietness of the snow. And, and I realized I need open space. That's just who I am. Elbow Room by Elizabeth Arnold from Atlantic Public Media's Stories from the Heart of the Land. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you During a period when my business was not experiencing success, I was sitting in my jacuzzi with my friend, and we were drinking wine, 
And then, when the telephone rang, I was concerned if they were about to shut off the electricity. Every time it rang, and during that time we were sitting in that jacuzzi, that certainly was feeling like you're in a tight spot. Do you get up and answer the phone, or do you not? That was many, many years ago, but never, never to be forgotten. The height of incongruity and the tight spot that we were in. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear nearly 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes, send us an email, or let us know through Facebook or Twitter. You can also support us with a donation at thirdcoastfestival.org. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.